A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history. Like the bed, hair or beards, plague, egg or vague. Sam, I've always been fascinated in the history of vagueness. I think we should definitely do the history of vagueness or fun bun and homespun. In this period of lockdown, we're Recording this at the height of the coronavirus, everything is being homespun. People are making things. Don't you find? Yes, absolutely. I want to do the history of vagueness as well. I think that's a really, really good idea. Most, most history should be vague, I feel. We will, however, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, as always, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam? that the history of humour, as I feel it's a time for humour, is all about the release of social tension, political lampooning, gender politics, mothers-in-law, and of course, springtime frivolity. With April Fool's Day just around the corner, we should definitely do something on tricks. Or that the history of chairs is all about monarchy, the death penalty, punishment, witches, and of course, how could we forget, the invention of comfort. Oh, that's very good. Very good, James. Well, I've been thinking about the history of clouds uh, as well. I went for an early morning dog walk this morning. Did you know the history of clouds is all about navigation and weather forecasting, the devil, urine, nuclear war, invisible gases and cholera? I, I, I imagine it is. Do you know, uh, I, I've been doing a lot of homeschooling and I learned all about clouds the other day. Uh, I helped my eight-year-old daughter create a cloud wheel. So I, I'm, I'm all up for a podcast on clouds. Well, um, I think we should do that too. Listen, the man sitting opposite me, let's just say that if you were history, he would get you into a lava. It is Professor Extraordinaire, James Daybell. Hello, Sam. That is so funny. Um, and the man sitting opposite me uh, is the distant friend across town, the truly wonderful historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. I miss you, Sam. I miss you, James. I miss you, James. Um, I'm hoping so I've been recording a little series of homeschooling podcasts. And you know what? It doesn't feel the same without you. I, 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 I do genuinely miss you. Um, <laughs> and we should be whizzing all over the country now, doing all sorts of things, events, shows, going to schools. Um, but instead, we are we are we are locked inside. Um, and so 
we are bringing uh, we're bringing ourselves to you via the wonders of the podcast and internet. We are, and see if it'll work. So we decided to do a few linked to coronavirus. So we've done, um, we did one on contagion in a, in a in a fever itself of creativity in the car, which I was very pleased with. Um, we're now going to be doing soap today, and I think we've got the history of loneliness coming up. There's a, I've just been sent a very uh, interesting new book on loneliness, um, which I'm going to read for that uh, by a woman called Faye Bound, um, who's written on all sorts of things, but she's just published a new book on loneliness. So we will um, we will talk about that. Absolutely. But today we're going to be doing the history of soap, which I, I feel like I've got a, a new relationship with the history of soap. But actually, we um, for those of you interested in what we're talking about, um, a long time ago, James and I did a, an episode on the history of hands. So if you're finding yourself with a new relationship with your hands, do go back to our, um, our archive of podcasts and check out the one on the history of hands because it's absolutely fascinating. But I'm finding um, particularly while we're talking about soap and hands that I've I'm coming across a new relationship with my hands. I'm becoming quite paranoid about my hands. My hands are getting quite sore as well from all of the washing and um, and also the not touching things. My elbows have become sore from touching everything with my elbow. You need to rethink in a in a different way. I mean, I wonder whether before we start kicking off with soap, whether it's just worth pondering about the situation that we're in, because I think the situation that we're in in lockdown, a global pandemic, is something that it, it, these have happened in the past, but it is something that is really epoch changing for us potentially. Um, and there are two two really interesting things. One is how will historians in the future look back and study this period, and what can we do as historians to make sure that we record as much of what is going on today, you know, our everyday reactions of school being shut, being locked in the house, um, all the sort of community outreach that we're seeing all over the place. Um, but also thinking about it in a sort of historical continuum, how is this going to change the way in which the world operates in the future in all sorts of ways? I mean, you just have a look at the kind of financial packages that are uh, governments around the world are introducing in order to shore up the economy, the global economy, and what kind of impact is that going to have? Um, you know, in terms of social relationships, how is that going to suddenly be impacted? The way in which we're now all interacting online, not that we weren't before, but it, it sort of fast-tracked all sorts of things that I think as a historian, you know, it, it's time to, it's time to ponder no, I completely agree. I completely agree. And all of these interesting themes that are coming up at the moment, I think will help us do that. You know, being able to think about um, loneliness or whatever it might be, or soap or hands or contagion in, in all of these different ways. And going through this experience will also help us help us, um, you know, understand what, what on earth is going on. Um, so when it comes to soap, what's what what's I mean, it's it's there are so many different ways you can actually think about soap, aren't there? And let's do our, our sort of initial kind of brainstorm of the ways you can think about soap. Think about the traditional history of soap, and you can think about the invention and use of soap. Um, and soap has a history that you can trace back, as always, to um, ancient times. I think they discovered soap in in Pompeii. Soap is used throughout the medieval period. Um, there's a there's a shift, I think, in the nineteenth century with 
the sort of discovery of germs and various sort of scientists discovering uh, discovering the the sort of history of germs that germs actually spread disease. People like um, Louis Pasteur and his discovery of microbes, um, the surgeon Joseph Lister, um, and the development of hygiene policies, um, Robert Koch um, and his sort of work on, on germs um, and, and each disease being traced back to individual germs. And then there's then there is the way in which um, then there's the, the, the way in which hands are vectors of spreading germs and disease. So you can think about soap in, in that sort of sense. Um, you can also think about the uses of soap, not just for medicine, but also in terms of not just hygiene, but also in terms of laundry, disinfecting. Um, you can think about it in terms of advertising, marketing. Um, so you can see it in all those kinds of ways. You can also think about the kinds of packaging and advertising for it. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is soap boxes uh, later on, uh, which gets us out of soap. But it's these are the crates that would have packaged soap turned upside down were a, a sort of platform for people to to talk about freedom of speech and political ideas and social revolution. Soft soaping uh, is all about the history of flattery. You're, ra you're rolling your eyes, Willis. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just wondering when you were going to stop. It's very good. <laughs> there is a great deal of things you can do. Um, I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, the making is interesting and then the inventing of it, who invented it, where and how that spread around the world. I think it's fascinating, the idea of things developing at the same time in the same place or not. Innovations, patents or the 19th century patents for soap would be fascinating. It's one of my favourite things to go to the British Library and to explore the patents when they're registered. Um, different types of soap. I can see that um, aromatic soap, so smells come in primarily from the Italians. Um, so we would have been using soap which cleaned us, but which absolutely reeked because it was primarily made out of animal fats. So you've got this uh, sort of changing idea of, of, you know, what is acceptable and things that can make you smell nice linked with invention as well. I think it's fascinating. Um, the early... Monopoly on soap. The monopoly on soap connects us to Charles I's um, personal rule. So that period when he dis before the uh, English Civil War, when he dispensed with Parliament... Uh, he raised his taxes uh, in various sort of crafty ways, including the granting of monopolies to all sorts of trades. And one of the things he granted a monopoly for is soap. There's a, yeah, I mean, the history of monopolies and tax and all the economics involved in it as well. So tax was also one of, um, sorry, soap was also one of these objects which was taxed along with uh, bricks and windows and tobacco and sugar and tea. So there's also a history of the smuggling of soap, which I think is fascinating. Um, we, we also did a little podcast on the history of bubbles. So you can think about um, people using soap for things not necessarily for cleaning. Um, yeah. Lubrication is one, um, but play is another. So there'll be a lot of people at home with kids just make some bubble blowers, do some bubble blowing. It's so simple, it's so fun, and it's a very, very ancient, ancient way of passing the time as well. And listen to our podcast on bubbles. My, my, my daughters have been washing their dolls in the bath with lots and lots of soapy water. 
<laughs> yeah, we've been doing we've been doing all sorts of inventive things during this period of homeschooling. Is it um, is it worth talking about the science of soap as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So the science. I'm. I mean. I. I I'm sort of. I was very interested in why we are all washing our hands so so much and the sort of the science behind that. And this is basically because the soap does kill uh, the, the virus. So there's an article in there was an article uh, in The Guardian that I read called The Science of Soap. Here's how it kills the coronavirus by Paul Thordeson. Um And it says here, so why does soap work so well on the SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus and indeed most viruses? And the article goes on, the short story, because the virus is a self-assembled nanoparticle in which the weakest link is the lipid or fatty bilayer. So this is the sort of layer that coats, coats it. Soap dissolves the fat membrane and the virus falls apart like a house of cards and dies. Or rather, we should say it becomes inactive as viruses aren't really alive. Isn't that isn't that brilliant? So just simply washing your hands very vigorously for about 20 seconds um, is, uh, you know, is, um, is very effective at getting rid of it. Isn't that good? And, and you, should, you, should, you should apparently uh, sing uh, two, two sort of happy birthdays to yourself. But I was thinking, I was thinking what other kinds of songs could you sing? Uh, during this period, I, I think I heard this on the news quiz, um, and they they suggested this brought me back to the to my childhood that the, the police song uh, "Don't Stand So Close to Me." Uh, a couple of lines of that would be would be quite good at the moment. That's excellent. Um, so where should we start then? Have you got what? Do we, what, what do you want to do? Well, I one of the things one of the things I was I was interested in is is the history of soap uh, against disease. So I talked earlier on about the, the way in which uh, doctors and scientists discovered germs during the 19th century. Um, we then have the outbreak of Spanish flu in, in 1918, which sort of goes around the globe, kills a ton of people. And what's fascinating is the response of the soap industry to that. And we've got a series of adverts that come out after the, um, after the influenza of that period that are, that are recommending themselves as um, a way of getting rid of influenza. There's, a, there's an advert for Life Boy Soap, um, and it describes itself, the influenza scourge. The father who links up the Life Boy soap links up his whole family with smiling health. There's nothing like Life Boy for introducing a wholesome cleanliness everywhere and destroying the germs of disease and sickness. And you've got a picture here of a guy in a sou'wester with a sort of waterproof hat on um, holding a Life Boy, saves life. Um, so it's re soap is recommended. There's an article from the Ministry of Health in support of Boots the Chemist for the importance of, of health. Sunlight soap, there's another advert. Uh, a big tonic supply and demand. The makers of sunlight soap have laboured unceasingly 
to procure an ever-increasing supply of the purest materials in order to meet the demands for this efficient friend of the housewife. So there are all sorts of things. Jay's fluid, it guards against influenza, scarlet fever, smallpox, measles, and all infectious diseases for the daily use of Jay's fluid, the ideal disinfectant. Safe, efficient, economical, use it in your bath, spray the atmosphere of the home, factory, office, cinema, disinfect all lavatories, sinks and drains, invaluable for use in schools, all chemists sell Jay's fluid, the best disinfectant. And you could you could go on. So there so so it's not just now that we are thinking about soap as a product to combat viruses. This is something that happened in the early 20th century too, after the pandemic of Spanish Spanish flu. Hmm. I've been thinking about eating soap. Oh, now that is unexpected. Eating soap? Uh, yes, yes. Wash your mouth out with soap. It's all about swearing. There we go. There we go. You know what I'm talking about. However, there, there are various aspects to it. There's the first one I came across that made me think about this, actually, was a, was a, um, a cartoon, like a Giles cartoon or something from um, uh, the 20s, maybe. Newspaper cartoon with a parrot sitting on a perch surrounded in bubbles. And um, the, the strap line was like, oh, I made him wash his mouth out with soap. So you've got the idea of this parrot being really rude and, and someone force feeding this parrot soap who was then spouting bubbles rather than soap. But there's a, there is a whole um, fascinating history about of, of people eating soap or being made to eat soap. It's something that I've come across as well in my, um, my, na my, my career as a naval historian. And we recently published something on the Navy Records Society online magazine, which is brilliant. Uh, if any of you have not come across it yet, please go to navyrecords.org.uk. And this is the diary of a chap called Victor Hutley, who was sailing on HMS Repulse in 1925, going on a world tour in this, this, this period uh, after the First World War, before the outbreak of the Second World War. It's absolutely fascinating for um, all sorts of things. Um, but m most interestingly is um, that they're all on board ship when they cross the equator. And there, oh. there is a long established tradition of um, hazing, I think it might be described as now. So um, people kind of uh, initiating those who have not been initiated. And on a ship, it took a very uh, strange um appearance and it took a very strange form. I've got a bit of an extract from his diary which I'm going to read you here. Everyone is trembling with excitement at the prospect of the process of initiation which is the lot of those who have not crossed the line before. A great canvas bath has been rigged forward beneath the turrets and staging erected round it so that the old sea dogs can watch the novices being dipped. Neptune put in an appearance at 9.30 this morning and was accompanied by guards of police dressed in bright red jerseys, sea boots and cocked hats with skull and crossbones on the side, followed by the bears pulling the chariot containing Neptune and Amphitrite. I don't know how to say that. Amphitrite. Following in procession with a clerk, Dr. Barber, lather friends, mermaids and a heterogeneous collection of other oddments. The greetings of the previous night were repeated, and after the procession had taken position on the staging, greetings were given to the prince who was standing with Sir Lionel Halsey and other senior officers 
on another part of the scaffold. He mentions the prince. This is actually uh, the actual prince, uh, the Prince of Wales, who is joining them. Anyway, this is the key bit, James. The clerk who was the first man you met and then the doctor who gave you a soap pill of enormous dimensions, seating yourself on the tipping stool by the edge of the bath, you then had to submit to a process of lathering with an enormous paintbrush and a shave with an enormous razor. When quite suddenly the seat gave way and you did a beautiful back somersault into the water, your eyes, your ears and your mouth full of beastly soap. So, that is one of so many wonderful examples of people being made to eat soap in the Royal Navy or, or on merchant ships as well, crossing the equator. But the, what I think is fascinating about this is two things. The first is that there's a material culture of evidence of this because the people who survived were often either tattooed, so it's a material culture on people's skin, or they were given an actual certificate. And at the collections of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, there are lots of fabulously homespun, homemade, unique certificates handed out to people to say that they'd gone through this process. They'd been washed clean, essentially, of their previous selves. So you've got this idea of the soap changing people, being an agent of change. And the, and the soap and the shaving is so crucial in this ritual. So you'll turn from a novice a novice of the sea into an experienced mariner, someone who can handle the hard work, someone who's done the time at sea, a bit like being in a prison. But the idea behind it is that the soap can cleanse, that the soap can make people change. And that is just one aspect of a history which can go on and on and on. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in, in a few more minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite dangerous to eat soap, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm reading here that it caused even even ordinary bars of soap and liquid hand soaps can be in really bad for you. Vomiting, diarrhea, irritate the lining of your mouth, your digestive tract. Um, it, you know, I mean, it's 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 terrible. I mean, I think also, isn't there a history of of giving? You know, the the idea wash your mouth out with soap and water is related to uh, kids who are basically you know, foul-mouthed. Yes, and there's a real and fascinating history of that. It was particularly prevalent in the UK and in the US. Um, but just before we move yeah. on to that, I want to talk about this idea because of, of hazing, of basically being punished or being beaten up or, or, you know, being bullied using soap. And I found a copy of um, an amazing book in the, in the online library of the University of California. Um, and this is, this is brilliant. I've really, really enjoyed reading this. Um, so here we are, February the 9th, 1901, and it's a published uh, by um, the US Congress, and it's entitled An Investigation of Hazing of the United States Military Academy. So there is a, uh, there's like a tribunal, okay, and um, some leading military figures have been sent to West Point, which is where all the officers are trained um, for, the, for, the, um, for the US Armed Forces, and they've obviously been complaints of hazing, and what happens is that they get a load of recruits in and ask them what's happened to them. And they also get in a load of doctors and ask them about what they think the impact of all of this is. Uh, and there's a, the transcriptions are fabulous. So bear with me when I just uh, find these. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here we go. What I think is interesting is actually the variety of different names of things that these people suffered, as well, of which eating soap was just one. Okay, here we go. I want to make an inquiry with reference to the resolution adopted by the class. Under the term hazing, let me ask you if these may be included. Bracing. No. You do not call that hazing? No, sir, I do not. <laughs> uh, what about wooden willies? Yes, sir, that definitely is hazing. What, 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 is, wooden, what is wooden willies? I haven't found out. I, don't, I want to know. Right. Um, football. Yes, sir. Eagling, yes sir. Hanging on a stretcher, yes sir. Box holding. By that, do you mean holding out the cleaning box? Uh, yes, that is definitely hazing. Um, chinning, no sir. Um, putting hot tallow or grease on the feet, definitely yes. Um, and then uh, it keeps on going. Um, under what heading does dropping hot tallow on the feet come? I don't know what heading that would come under. I suppose that would come under hazing more than anything else. Sitting on a bayonet. Yes, sir. Hazing. Sweating. Hazing. Chew-chewing. Hazing. Chewing on rope ends. That would definitely be hazing if it were done, but I have not heard of it being done for two years. Anyway, we come to the meat of it, James. Eating soap. I... <laughs> I don't know whether I would consider that hazing or not, but it definitely happens. <laughs> Eating quinine. Yes, sir, that would definitely come under hazing. So you don't think there should be a difference between eating soap and eating quinine? No, sir. I mean, yes, sir. Both of them should come under it. So this goes on for pages and pages where they're trying to, to get a grip, firstly, on what is happening in the dormitories of this US Academy. And then they're trying to, to stop it. 
Um, it's a fascinating book, and I would urge you all to um, see if you can you can track it down. And often these these kind of rituals, it's not just within the armed forces, the navy, but it's also within certain schools and universities or colleges, and they're part of a sort of um, you know violent form of initiation, um, and they lead to all sorts of things. And the the authorities, the institutions themselves. Um, disapprove of them uh, and in fact they're 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 often illegal and so these activities are going on um without the permission of the authorities so they're going on under the radar um in america in in american universities it's something that you find in particularly male fraternities but also in sororities uh where people have to perform all sorts of yeah, humiliating initiation rites like wandering around the town half naked and cleaning up all sorts of, you know, mess and vomit. Having taught in the US for um, three years, um, about 15 years ago, uh, you would hear about all of these activities, uh, including uh, bizarre things like stealing people's shoes and tying the laces together and then throwing them over um, telegraph wires. I remember in the the town where I where I lived, just driving down uh, one of the main streets that was called Fraternity Row, and looking up and just wondering why there were a dozen pairs of trainers <laughs> with their laces tied over these telegraph wires. Uh, and I think it's all part of this sort of hazing <laughs> sort of initiation ceremony. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the final bit here is when they get a, they, they get a doctor in to so obviously some some recruits become extremely unwell and injured through his hazing. Yeah. Um, when your brother went to see Doctor Groom to be treated for hemorrhoids, did it occur to you at the time that it was on account of the hazing that he was ill? Answer: Yes. And then when we went to see the doctor about his indigestion, do you think it was due to the hazing at West Point? I thought it was from what they made him do, eating soap and quinine pills and such things. Um, and then when he was finally ill with pneumonia, you thought that was to do with hazing. He says, yes, so that was an interesting link with um, pneumonia. Anyway, um, they then interview the doctor and they ask about whether eating soup will cause soap would cause indigestion and blah, blah. And he talks about the, um, the impact of inflaming inflaming the stomach on, on soap. So be careful with what you do with your soap, ladies and gentlemen. Um, please make sure you don't eat it. Uh, but the, the, what, the washing of mouth out with soap itself is amazing. I'll, a quote here from the Good Housekeeping Guide in 1889. A friend of mine was horrified one day by hearing her little boy make use of a very bad word. Turning to the maid, she said, Jane, you may take Master Dick upstairs and wash his mouth out with soap and water. It is too soiled for him to sit at the table with us. Oh, that's extraordinary. What what I find, I I mean, I was I remember as a kid um, when I, I was a very good boy, um, not really, um, but you know, I remember sort of the the phrase "wash your mouth out with soap and water." Not necessarily used to me. Uh, I never had my mouth washed out with soap and water. My parents were wonderful, patient. Uh, individuals um but it struck me just doing a little bit of reading about this how prevalent this seems to have been and there's all sorts of evidence in and particularly in in the US uh where parents seem to have used this as a form of punishment and and you have it in orphan asylums within um the criminal justice system there's a there's a um a study 
at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, which was carried out in 2006, where somebody teaching there interviewed all their colleagues about their upbringing. And apparently in about 20% of the cases, people remembered having soap put in their mouths after they said something that their parents had disagreed with or something that was sort of a profanity. I mean, you're talking about one fifth. I mean, I had no, I thought it was almost a sort of an urban myth. <laughs> this, this sort of wash your mouth out with soap and water, something in comic books, like the dandy or the beano or, you know, something like that. Yeah. But it actually went on. It did actually go on. I love, I love this. So, so have, have you got any more on, um, got any more on eating soap? Well, yes, a bit, because um, one of the <clears throat> other things that was used um, in the manufacturing of soaps is castor oil, um, which is also yes. also used um, as, a, as, a, as an industrial lubricant, among anything else. And um, that was forced down people's throats as a punishment as well, um, yes. particularly most famously by the Italians. So if you look at fascist Italy under Mussolini, um, they, the black shirts there are using this soap-like substance or this ingredient in soap to, um, to, to force-feed people castor oil to make them unwell. It's, it's a very violent form of torture, essentially. Goodness me. Well, I want to move on and talk about soapboxes. So soapboxes would be originally the, the sort of packing crates uh, that would have transported uh, soap and other other dry goods um, from where they were made to where they were going to be sold. And the soapbox was originally used as a platform for public speaking. So what, what somebody would do is they would put the soapbox down, stand up on it so that they would be raised up above the crowd. And then they would talk about all sorts of things to do with, with, with politics. Um, and this this comes around during uh, the 19th century and there are various sort of famous um, soapbox orators from this period. This is also a period when we have the rise of Speaker's Corner in a particular part of Hyde Park in London, where since 1872, people would get together uh, to discuss religion, politics and various other things. It's still thriving today and you see it as a site during the um, demonstrations against uh, the Iraq war, for example, you know, back in the early 2000s, it was a place where people would congregate. And that has a very interesting history. It also connects us to politics, because I don't know whether you remember back to the 1992 general election. Uh, this was a time when the Conservative Party were in the doldrums, Neil Kinnock's Labour Party were looking like they were going to win and the Tory leader at the time was John Major and one of the things that he did was he did his soapbox campaign and so rather than the very slick uh, Labour Party campaign what he did was he basically went to the streets and a lot of the campaign was him turning up in places mixing with the ordinary people the everyday people going out and giving these impromptu well they probably rehearsed speeches but certainly going out sitting standing there and talking to the crowds and it was actually a very effective very very effective campaign 
um, and they won in excess of by in excess of 14 million votes, uh, which is one of the highest um, majorities um, that any sort of political party had had at the time uh, in a British general election. Um, but what's what's fascinating also is the development of public speech and Speaker's Corner as a site for public speeches and debates from the sort of mid-1800s. Um, and this was an area uh, on the northeast edge of Hyde Park. It's quite near Oxford Street. Do you know where Oxford Street and Marble Arch is? It's, ju it's just there. And you can go along on a, on a Sunday and you'll see all sorts of people there uh, literally standing on soapboxes, um, talking about their, talking about various things that they have in mind. Um, it's somewhere where Karl Marx uh, went to, George Orwell, uh, Vladimir Lenin, um, and in 1872, an Act of Parliament set this area aside as a place for public speaking. Um, this was a site where um, there had been various. Um, meetings there that were previously had been seen as illegal or some sort of form of riot. So, for example, in 1866, there was a meeting of the Reform League. These were the people who demanded an extension of the franchise. In other words, in other words they demanded that more people should be given the vote. Um, this meeting was suppressed by government. Um, there was also a... Um, in response to this, um, the people found that the, the park was locked and they couldn't get into it in order to speak. And so demonstrators basically tore up all the railings so that they could go in. And the next year in 1867, um, a crowd of 150,000 um, marched on, the, on Hyde Park. Um, and the police and troops didn't intervene um, during this period. And after that, in 1872, we have the Parks Regulation Act. And this gave people the right to meet and speak freely in Hyde Park. Um, and you can, you know, as I said, you can go there, you can go there today. And it is almost a sort of place for, you know, total and utter freedom of speech. Although I imagine nowadays with the rise of hate speech and and the rise of um you know terrorism um that that it's that it is policed a little more and people aren't allowed to go there and spread sort of hateful messages but nonetheless this is the way that soap boxes the technology uh for um carrying soap uh can connect us to politics and freedom of speech and and popular politics and the mass and the mob and crowds and and <laughs> All sorts of ideas. Right. So um, you need to think about this practically, right? You need a box to stand on to to stand up, right? So there are a lot of different types of boxes. <laughs> this is actually really important. So why, why soap? Okay. And the answer, I've just realised, or I think this is true. Um, I don't know about this at all, but soap's a luxury item. Okay. It's taxed. So until, you know, the sort of the 18th century, it was very difficult for people to actually get decent soap. So the only people who got soap were the wealthy and the, the kind of the, the minorities in society. There's a lovely quote from Samuel Pepys's diary. And he, he's using um, demonstrating that soap is a, is a luxury gift for a lady of quality. 
In the morning I fell to my loot till nine o'clock, then to my lord's lodging and set out a barrel of soap to be carried to Mrs. Anne, who was Lady Anne Montague. But the point is, um, soap is something that is intricately and intimately associated with the upper classes, with the people with money, which means the people who have a voice, the people who have a vote. And what's happening here is they are literally turning it upside down and standing on top of it. Very clever. Um, Very yeah. clever. It's the world, the world turned upside down in revolutionary terms by standing on a soapbox. Oh, I love it. Exactly. Did you make that? Did you did you make that up? Hey, did you make that up? Yeah, literally just struck me. No, I think they're um they're um they're making themselves they're giving themselves a voice and they're doing it in a really symbolic, interesting way. Very good. Yeah, I well, deserve some kind of award for being a historian for that. You did definitely the um the 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 Daybell Soap Historian Award. <laughs> That's very good. Um, and actually, you know, to just thinking about that briefly, you could just mention the, the fact that it was taxed and it was taxed until 1835. Um, it was taxed for over a century from 1712. There are accounts of people smuggling soap and smuggling the other things you need for soap. So you need uh, salt as well, um, particularly around um, the Welsh coasts. Uh, which I think is really, really interesting. And this this idea is also if you if you one of the one of the ways that you used you made soap was with tallow. But the other which comes from animal fats, but the other use for tallow is light. So if you were poor and you were living on the coast and you managed to come across or to get hold of some kind of cargo of of tallow, um, you've got the sense of, of coastal communities being flooded with luxury goods that no one knew what to do with. But the point is you could actually, you had to make a decision between whether you're going to use that tallow for light or cleanliness. And I think that's fascinating. And I wonder how many other items there are out there which provided people, which posed people with a fundamental dilemma about things that would improve their lives and they have to decide which way to go. So would you go light or would you go cleanliness? I would probably, I would probably do both. <laughs> so I wouldn't a want, a little bit of both. I wouldn't want to smell and nor would I not want to be able to read of an evening. <laughs> They're a very practical man. Yeah. Um, well, who knew that soap was so interesting? Well, and also, there's the whole history of coconuts, which I've discovered is completely amazing. So uh, the other people using coconut oils to make soap as well. And um, the history of coconut. So how do you get coconut oils and where have the coconuts come from? And which is opens up an amazing story of global trade. And some people have recently done a, a, an amazing study on the DNA of coconuts. And they've discovered that actually... Um, they, they, they thought it was going to be a mishmash with coconuts coming from all over the world, and it's not. And they can prove that actually there were two very succinct, focused areas of coconut production in different parts of the world, in East and in West. And it means now, well, just also, you know, think about how useful coconuts are. I'm not just saying their coconuts are used for, for soap. They're actually amazing for all sorts of things. You can drink them, you can eat them, you can burn them. They're an amazing, they're like a Swiss army knife of, of vegetables. Um, so anyway, we now know that, that we can trace the, the history of, of humans moving around the world by looking at their impact on the DNA of coconuts. 
<laughs> which I think is wonderful. And I love that. And just one use of it was coming to so coming to soaps. Um, did you know the mutiny on the bounty? Bounty was begun by people raiding a locker in which they were locked up coconuts. I did not, no. Yeah, because they're so yummy to eat and drink. And they're healthy. And they're sterile as well. Completely sterile coconut water. Yeah, you can actually use it as a... If you need a, if you need a saline drip and you can't get any, you can use coconut water. Gosh, we should be, we should be eating coconuts today, I feel. I feel they would be virus-free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they would. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to our Unexpected History of Coconuts. I very much enjoyed that. Oh, sorry, it was our Unexpected History of Soap. Yes, <laughs> thank you for listening to... Thank you for listening to that, yes. Uh, do follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast Twitter feed on at Unexpected Pod. We were supposed to be on tour, but unfortunately, our touring has all had to be rearranged for the autumn. And we're working very hard on that. But you can still be in touch with us. Um, you can listen to the podcast. You can get in touch with us via our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And you can also support us on our Patreon accounts uh, to help us keep this going during this time of global crisis. And in the meantime, do please enjoy the podcast. Stay safe, everyone, and keep in touch. Send us some tweets, hit us up on Instagram, whatever. Get in touch. Give us some ideas. All right, bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.